All righty, welcome everybody to today's episode of Converging Conversations. My name is Onika Jefferson Cornelius. I am your host and the founder of Convergent Solutions, LLC. Converging Conversations is where we converse with an amazing leader who's joining us to share their story, personal or professional, and share how they have connect, made the connection between who they are, what they do, and how they serve others. These conversations are designed to pique your curiosity, challenge your thinking, and encourage you to unleash more of you in the world. Today's guest is an amazing young Black creative CEO of the Rural Community Health Clinic System located in and around Selma, Alabama. We are welcoming Ms. Kashay Dozier-Smith. Kashay serves as the Chief Executive Officer of the Rural Health Medical Program Incorporated, where she has developed experience in managing federally qualified community health centers in the rural black majority region of Alabama. Cachet is a Spelman College graduate majoring in economics and a minor in management. Mrs. Smith also established the Black Belt Community Development Coalition in 2014, which serves as a transitional self-help program for the homeless and individuals and our families in transition to position themselves to re-enter their community sober, employed, financially stable, in a stable home, and closer to completing their academic goals. And I tell you what, as if that wasn't enough on her plate, she is the mom of four amazing, intelligent, and beautiful children. Miss Cachet, it is so good to get a chance to spend some time with you and learn a little bit more about what you got going on over there in Alabama. How you doing today? I'm doing amazing. That was such a that was a great introduction. I was like, who is this person you're you're introducing? Is she coming on next? Thank you so much. No, thank you. That that's you. Let, let, let's let that sit in and settle for a moment. That is you. And what's amazing is, you know what, that's not even all of the story, but we're gonna unpack a little bit more today. So thank you for being with us. Um you know what? It's been so long. We have known each other for a number of years. I started to count the years and I decided not to do that. <laughs> but it's been awesome just to watch you grow and mature and become a mother and a CEO and do all the things. I'm not surprised, to be clear. I am not surprised if I think about how we met. Um, I still remember that day. We might We might talk about that question a little bit, but... I just remember um, all of this tenacity and energy and momentum. And, you know, I've been stalking you, right? Just in terms of seeing all that you've got going on. And I was really glad to have you, you know, come and join me here on the podcast. So we'd love to, let's, let's just jump in if you're open. Um, in your own words, what made you decide to accept my invitation? I'm sure you saw this email going, okay, what is Miss Onika doing? And what is it she's asking me to come and talk about? So I love it. Just to hear in your own words, what brought you to Converging Conversations today? To be honest, I, I was most interested in catching up with you. Um, I don't get a chance to talk about myself often, but if it gave me an opportunity to catch up with you, one of my first professional mentors, of course, oh. I was going to do you know, and I think how we got to our second or third date, it, it was it was destined to happen, right? Yeah. We we sure. caught up. We did that part. Yeah. And there's so many other things that we we must catch up on. But now we're here to do the 
existence of your your amazing organization and i'm just i'm happy to be a part i'm happy that you chose me to um be one of the emerging leaders that you want to showcase so oh, thank yeah. you yeah definitely this was um this podcast has been a learning journey for me but it's also a labor of love i um i tell people a lot of times they say oh well you know it's really important that you have an amazing network and i don't have a network i have a tribe of amazing people that are just just so powerful in and of their own right so it was an opportunity to provide room and space for you and those like you in my life to tell their stories so we're gonna go ahead and get started you know i um as we think about this i cannot imagine the challenges that you face right since becoming you know, what do I call it? Ms. CEO. <laughs> um, but as you think about that, I'm going to put it back to you, right? Which has been the biggest challenge or what has been the biggest challenge that you faced and, and how have you overcome it? One that I wake up with every morning is, and I think I shared this with you, I feel like I've grown up in my career mm -hmm. and arrived too soon. I don't think that the other leaders, my counterparts and colleagues were ready for me. But being a believer, um, faith believer in Christ, you arrive when it's your, your time. Mm -hmm. You know, you may not understand it at the time and why you're going through it. But I grew up in this community and I left this community eager to go learn and explore and become, you know, someone that was going to bring about change. Wow. When I came home, I, I was still that person with so many ideas and wanted to fix things and, and, and really fix myself. It was kind of like a full circle moment. I did not expect this, to be completely honest with you. Right. But I, I just remember the Lord telling me that, you know, before you, as a mother of, at the time, three mm -hmm. um, and wife, go and use all of your um, 401k transitioning from your first professional job, Accenture, how mm -hmm. we met. Mm -hmm. Why don't you learn how to learn? Why don't you take the time to learn another nonprofit inner workings? Why don't you go in and do what you've learned and see if it's what you actually want to do? Because you now have people that depend on you. You take that experience and let's see what comes of it. So when I got here, I was one of two female CEOs across the state of Alabama in the uh, federally qualified health center world. Um, well, let, let me back up. I was one of four, one of two African-American females. In the entire state? In wow. the entire state. So right mm -hmm. now it's 17 health centers and I make up six counties, nine locations, and I'm now the only black female but there are two other females that are uh, Caucasian and the remaining uh, colleagues are, are males. And it's a mix. It's, it's, it's a few, uh, like four or five black males and the, the remaining are Caucasian white males. Mm -hmm. So just imagine being in my early 30s, everyone <laughs> is at least 55 and older. Somebody in that room I'm called you. Somebody, somebody in that room called you youngin. I, I'm willing to bet like 25 cents. Oh, somebody in that room called you. Definitely, I was too young, too ambitious. I may even got the the angry back woman wow. syndrome going on, you know, because I was just always so eager. I had I had that why, why this, and why can't we do that? 
you know, what's the purpose of this? And this is what I've discovered. So it, it was a lot. And I had to learn that the, the world that I came from being a fixer um, and, and managing the change in, in the work that I did, I had to bring it to an organization that I was going to be permanently placed in, right? Yeah. So it wasn't fix a problem, move. It was fix all of the problems over time. But you can't go into something new thinking you can do that by yourself. I had to step back and get to know the culture. I had to get to know the people. I had to get to know the leaders before me, the board members, and then also find mentors within that 17 to kind of help navigate me. Because as you know, I just I was ready to come in and just change the world. Mm -hmm. But you have to pace yourself. So I think the biggest challenge is something that you didn't arrive to fast. I arrived when the when I was needed because the organization was actually going through the process of being one of those agencies that if the financial um, makeup of the organization and compliance did not turn around within 12 months, that organization would have been dissolved and the territory would have been divided between neighboring health centers. So I arrived with that knowledge, with that tenacity and that drive and here I am almost turning seven in March and we have grown significantly financially and our footprint the patients we serve and the grant dollars and additional services that we've offered so now I have to tell myself you you arrived on time you know you still may be the youngest in the room and you may also hold one of the diversity cards that are not no longer there, but you're exactly where you're supposed to be. That is phenomenal. You know, if I think about, okay, so you touched on so many things, right? I mean, this, this, this podcast was really about how do we think about and explore the impact, right, that healthcare deserts have had on black and brown communities in, in, in rural, you know, rural locations, cities, states, and regional areas. But what you hit on is really, if you think about how we met, right, we're in consulting, you're in, you're in these environments, and we tend to think of the work we're doing as very project-driven. And when we talk about change management, when we talk about learning culture, when we talk about navigating different people groups, really, your past did prepare you for this. Probably isn't showing up or didn't show up the way you thought it would, but you were definitely prepared for this, and even more importantly, you were built for this, for sure. Um, you raised a lot of, of rich, of rich, rich points. I, I think about, you know, when I think about healthcare for black and brown communities, I remember what it was like growing up in this, now mind you, this is New York, right? But, but growing up and living with my grandmother and in that neighborhood. And when I thought about the words community healthcare, for me, it was just about remembering the neighborhood doctors and the dentists that were in that neighborhood when I was growing up. And those doctors, they looked like us. You know, they had their practices close to their patients. We were well, they were well known, well received, and well revered and honored in the community. Tell me, is that a little bit, is that what you're trying to get back to with, with rural health? Tell me a little bit more about how that's showing up and, and how are things going? Absolutely. So just a little backstory right about this particular organization community health centers um were established about um 50 years ago okay and it it started in a rural community with the um concept of 
filling the gap in healthcare in those community okay. communities, pulling together um, public health and healthcare advocates on a volunteer board to serve and 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 work with an organization to guide that organization of what that community need, mm -hmm. whether it was primary care, preventative, specialty, what have you. So there's a board structure, right? Right. Then there's the the CEO and leadership, and then it's the positions. What the organization, which is um, the Department of Health and Human Services, the federal um, department um, of our government, mm -hmm. and it, it created this space for new physicians and um, new physicians to come out of school to work off debt to live in rural communities and serve in rural communities. Oh, okay. Because before, you would graduate with all this debt from medical school if you're not on scholarship and you would get these loans to start a practice. Well, if you were a physician, you will go to areas, metropolitan urban areas, where you would attract private insurance patients to help pay off some of that debt. So you can start reaping some of those benefits of all those years of school, okay. establishing a family, establishing some type of work-life balance. But they were saying, well, what's happening to those people in rural communities? And for me, the public health and economics of that was nobody wants to go to a rural community that's not developed into an urban area or metropolitan areas. The quality of life, education, the amenities, they're, they're not there. Okay. So this program was established to bring that same neighborhood physician, local doctor in the neighborhood, pharmacist, all that feel back to communities. And what they created was, well, for however many years you dedicate, right, to this program, this cause, we will dedicate funds to repay your um, loans. So not only do they do that for physicians, but they do that for RNs and nurse practitioners now, which is amazing. Yeah. They've also evolved into becoming teaching health centers, where now uh, an organization could be a teaching health center and show rural and urban tracks. So you can recruit and hire from within. So not, you don't have to go to a, a um, a large hospital residency program, you can come see how rural medicine, um, the issues there and how to address them real time with the physicians that have dedicated their lives and time in those communities. Yeah. So to answer your question, yes, that's what I see because growing up in these areas, grew up in, in Perry County and in Selma, the mo most seasoned employee, which, which is a physician, his name is Dr. Edgar Brown. He was a physician at the flagship um, health center in Uniontown, where I grew up. When I moved from Tuscaloosa uh, to Uniontown, he was a physician. Mm -hmm. And I was in fifth grade. When I was hired, he was a CMO. I went to high school and graduated high school with his children. And to come back almost 15, 16 years later and be his boss, it shows the type of dedication mm -hmm. to a program such as rural health. His love for his community for his patients, for the work that organizations like this that were created to be in these small communities, um, he enjoyed that work and he benefited from the methodology of rep loan repayment for your investment in the community. And in addition to that, the salaries and benefit packages are very comparable to what a primary care physician in their own private practice would make. But what you get to do is to take care of those uninsured 
patients just as you would with those with private insurance. Wow. That that lack of government allowed grant dollars to still pay a, a very competitive, attractive salary while also taking care of and in in I would say healing and providing much needed public health services to communities that were overlooked and and not given you know the health equity it needed. For sure. So, just the story of of hearing your journey literally alongside Dr. Brown and to be able to come full circle. So I don't know, Dr. Dr. Edgar Brown, am I saying that right? Did I? Edgar Brown. Yeah, I just want to honor you. Dr. Brown, don't know if you will ever hear this podcast episode, but just want to make sure that you get your flowers. That is the continuity, right? And the consistency that our communities don't always get access to or are privy to anymore. So thank you. It, it, it kind of leads me to, if we think about the last couple of years, right, Kashay, I can, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I can't imagine you know, what COVID-19 has done in terms of, you know, just harm and impact in black and brown communities. As you think about that, what are some of the lingering issues and needs that you and your teams are dealing with and addressing? Absolutely. So healthcare in the South and healthcare in the South rural areas, you, yeah, we face every day education, language, um, barriers, right? Right. You have a lot of people who still they don't understand the things that the the health issues are coming to be seen like what exactly that chronic disease means. Why why you need to come so frequently. Right. The 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 care plan moving forward, right? Mm -hmm. So you put that type of patient education and try to create continuity of care for that patient at their level on top of COVID-19. I'm already suffering as an individual in poor communities to choose between food, rent, light bills, school supplies, you know, necessities in life to medication. Right. Which is happening, it's hitting everybody now, right? Nothing is cheap right. for anyone. Wow. Right. Or, or even paying for transportation because that too may be a barrier for me, right? Right. Um, to now trying to understand that I need to get more cleaning supplies, specifically these, because they kill the COVID-19 virus, or I need to get masks, or I need to, you know, um, I need to change my lifestyle, but my lifestyle, the funds that I have is not conducive to what society is telling me to change, too. Right. And so the, the other thing is, you know, in this region, especially with the, um, let me say this correctly, the, the study of those Tuskegee um, families years ago dealing with the medications and, and the things that those, those individuals were told, the experiment that was going on at the time with syphilis, that mistrust with doctors and the healthcare system and pharmaceutical companies, it's still in these, these brown people here. And let's, let's go there. Trust. Let's go there. Because some of our listeners may be young and may not know, right, about the Tuskegee experiments, where there were literally people groups that were identified who had been exposed to or contracted syphilis, and they were given placebos, or they, were, they weren't even told that they were ill. And they were literally right. followed for decades. 
And so when it was finally disclosed that there were governmental agencies actually doing tests on black and brown men, specifically keep me, keep me honest, was it, it I believe it was all men, that some, some of them had gone through such severe repercussions, right? That, you know, syphilis is something that could be healed with antibiotics and with, with short treatment, right? Literally right. suffered lifelong consequences, many even un, unto death. And so that plants such seeds with long roots. And I appreciate and honor that, right? Of mistrust and distrust of, right. to your point, governmental programs and, you know, tracking and creating care plans that really don't help people. That trust does not go away quickly. And I can imagine that you juxtapose that with COVID-19, something we don't know, and vaccines that are new or emerging. And then there are more questions than there are answers. I can imagine that compounded the distrust. Right. Sure. So, so with, with all of that, you you then see things that you you hear about, the conspiracy theories that, you know, well, certain communities receive resources first versus the brown ones or the wow. underserved ones. Wow. Um, and I personally can say that I have witnessed where vaccines were, well, a large um, mass um, vaccine program was created and an X number of vaccines were sent to this area. And it was supposed to be only for this area. About approximately 800 were not a part of that count. And it was stated that it was it was carved out for certain people to get those first at an earlier date, right? Then it was um, people from all counties. There, the protocol that was put into place to verify counties so that they can equally distribute the resources in, in every county in Alabama, that protocol was not being followed. So what we've had to do and what, what God put in my heart, my mind, I remember not sleeping a lot during um, 20, uh, late 2018 going into 2019, instead of trying to address how to test and vaccinate the first thing my team did was we we looked at we looked at the specialists that we knew those services were not going to be offered like vision, dental, um, women's health things that were going to be very invasive mm -hmm. where exposure to it would have you know happened because how you know you had to either work in someone's mouth or deal with other bodily fluids it, it was just sure. it, we we just decided to take another approach. I was not going to close a clinic. I was not going to terminate an employee. Because at the time, if you remember, the unemployment rates were, you know, yes. shooting out the roof. Yes. Um, how people were going to be able to take care of their families was uncertain. You know, you could see how the economy, everything was going in a downward spiral. So we created what we called an enabling team, which meant every every clinic in every county identified those enabling resources that family may need. So food pantries, transportation services, um, where they where the sites that were ready up and ready to test for COVID, right. any tests they had available. We even we had um we have an extra hours nurses line. We made it a 24 hour line so that people who would call in for COVID symptoms, we would pre-screen before we sent to those locations. Right. So we make sure that, that those resources were being utilized as needed. Okay. We, um, utility assistance programs, um, 
anything we can think of. If it was at churches, we had the point of contacts, the numbers. So when those phone calls came, we were able to direct those people to what, what the need was. Now that wasn't healthcare. That was, that was basically pulling together resources within a nonprofit to better assist families during that pandemic. So you're looking at the, the counselors and the, the um, community health workers or navigators and dentists and dental assistants. This is what these highly skilled, highly paid people were doing because that was the need. That was My the goodness. first thing we did. My goodness. The, sec the second thing was we saw that the services that we provided, since now the focus was on COVID testing mm -hmm. before the vaccine, it was to take the service in the clinic outside of the actual brick and mortar. Right. Because for those chronically ill people, people with HIV, people with diabetes, uncontrollable hypertension, all those things, um, they needed to be in, inside those clinics and they needed to be seen by, seen by the doctor. So other chronic issues did not go unforeseen during this pandemic, right? Right, but you were so, also not exposing people to additional comorbidity risks. I can, I can imagine it was, it was like we have to you have to keep everybody safe and everybody healthy and everybody right. alive. My God. Wow. And and then the biggest thing was the fear in staff. You started seeing nurses and doctors getting offered these extreme contracts to travel to these places, these metropolitan and urban places, right? Yeah. So now it is is resource retention. But then the other thing was plugging into the different um, resources such as the, the health departments and then the state office and then your vendors to make sure you're getting the right PPE. Mm. So luckily through for being mobile, from establishing those relationships in the community, I was make I was able to make sure that a policy and procedure and also a uniform of what what being suited up and protected as an individual mm -hmm. for my staff looked like. Because these people also were important. We are resources in the community to help the community, but they also have families too. So my nights were all about safety, protocol, resource information, data sharing. That was my life for two and a half years. Oh and in addition to watching the numbers of patients we can count for our grant dollars or patients seen for the health services we actually were offering, mm -hmm. those numbers were going down. That performance was going down. But all health centers received grace, right? Um, during that time period where it wasn't it wasn't held against you, mm -hmm. because that same federal government agency they pushed out resources too. They understood that these same organizations had the same need to help those individuals that were underserved. So, but as a CEO or as a community leader, you had to kick in gear to say before the federal government or the state. Um, officials decided what was going to happen with funding. What do you do with what you have now? So, so, you know, I am very fortunate and grateful that background was economics, right? <laughs> I was a mom. So all of the public safety, health, all those things were right here because I'm responsible for little humans now, right? <laughs> and the resources that we use in our community. But most importantly, it was the, the change management training that that was received because you know as i looked around and we talked about this not everyone in your organization is built the same that's the truth everyone thought that i with processes and spreadsheets and trackers they thought i was 
we don't have time for that. Yes, you do, because for every hour spent not doing what we told the government the grant we were going to do, you need to show what you did do. You got you need to show the impact so that they see the value in what what decisions were made. I've watched some of the more seasoned CEOs close health centers. I've wow. seen some were, that were very innovative and they created these outdoor bubble clinics where it was more just swab and go, swab and go. And, you know, until it became billable, they too were losing money, but they were getting out there and getting it done. Me, until my staff was confident in my leadership, confident in the plan forward and we got the resources we need to test, we were making sure people got to the right places. We were communicating to the centers that had the resources to make sure that they were able to get the people who needed the services at the time. So we were a connector and then we were a provider and we still connected. So it, it was it was very extreme, but it, it showed me this is how emergency preparedness should look. And this is how operating in a, a, a crisis look. So <laughs> there was no plan in the first for me, yeah. six to eight months. But we had to make it make sense. And now we, we have the tools and now we have some framework from the CDC, from the State Department, yeah. from epidemi epidemiologists on how to perform and, and, and react to crisis. So that is phenomenal. It, you know, it's interesting. If you think about the things that we learn, right, the tools, we we always think, you know what, well, I have a hammer and I, this is what I will use this hammer for. This is what I will use this screwdriver for. I love that you connected the dots between how we think about change in a very systemic and a very programmatic way, but we don't get to choose and dictate what that program looks like or what the urgency or emergency is. And the fact that you were able to marry the two is phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. Um, Hats off, lady. Hats off on that one. So you know what? Let's let's go there for a minute, right? On a personal note, our paths originally crossed way back when, right? When we were in management consulting. And I think their careers and running departments, running companies, I had that opportunity. And you were a person who made me feel that I deserved every opportunity mm -hmm. and I was there for a reason. Just just get the knowledge. Any of the noise or any of the people on the teams, because we know they changed all the time, personality, leadership styles, all of those things changed, but they it impacted the dynamics of the team. Sure. And I remember sometimes I would cry and tell you the things that I was faced with with other women or other clients. And you would just say it's experience. It's, 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 you're growing in your career. And I just remembered when I did this, developed a personal relationship. So I learned you were a minister. We prayed. We talked about my personal life. I remember seeing your family. I was like, wow, you know, as a black woman, you can have this professional life and have a successful marriage. You can have a healthy family. And I'm like, now, will that happen for me? And because I wanted it all, as you said, I, I wanted to be eventually, not in 17 years, not in 15 years, but I wanted to be one of the, the senior executives in this company, right? And then I wanted to, to be a power couple with whomever God had me to power up with. And so what I found was the things that I wanted were not in his plan and how I wanted them to happen. Right. And I think um our conversations, even the conversation when I decided to leave the company, um, 
I remember us having lunch and it, it was a hard one because I was like, I'm walking away from the company, but I'm not walking away from the person, not mm-hmm. the mentor, not the prayer partner, not the friend, but I was so nervous. You know, when my, I, w- I got moved from Atlanta to D.C. for an opportunity. All mm-hmm. the analysts were moved there. And then from, and you still followed me. You know, you, yeah. you kept in touch. And so from D.C. to Houston to find and love, right? Mm. It, it, it was a lot. It, it, I grew up, let me tell you, being a <laughs> Southern country girl, going from, my first airplane experience in college to being on a plane every week with this major company and and being around all these professionals. I was growing up like as, as a person and I wasn't taking all of that in because I've always been a list goal trying to achieve things. And I did not watch myself in the process. I didn't celebrate the little accomplishments. I heard the conversations, but I wasn't really listening. Mm. It wasn't until life started falling apart for me didn't get the promotion at the time I wanted it the relationship didn't work I was having the children the marriage didn't work I moved back home to work on myself work on my you know family be close to my family find out that my mom was diagnosed with MS you know in the process lost aunties grandmother it it was a lot of loss while I was trying to chase so much only to come home the place that I was told don't come back home without your, you know, being college educated. Don't come back home without a career. Don't come back home without a husband. Came home with all those things, right? right. Some of us living. Yeah. I still wasn't the person I wanted to be. And I just remembered the women that poured into me. And you always told me to face myself. You know, to observe the things that I was, to assess and observe what what I was going through to understand the growth. And it wasn't until I got home and life just really fell apart for me that I was able to see that I had to come to the place where I was losing what was important, right? Losing focus. Um, Lost a part of myself. And even gain that relationship that didn't work out, right? Had to come back home full circle to find Cachet. Yeah. And even with my need and desire for that nonprofit and being told, no, this city wasn't ready for what I was trying to do, this organization opened up an opportunity for me to become the woman I am now. So now being a single woman, four children, running a company, trying to be the the athletic mother, the ballet cheer mom, trying to now take take advantage of trying to go through a healing process and not finding cliche 17 years ago, but finding my place in where I'm now and becoming the woman I must be in these different roles that I'm playing in my life. Mm-hmm. It has been very interesting. And I just recall even the things that I saw in our relationship, the the messages that you provided me. I just remember the calmness you always gave me. I remember the encouragement. I remember the prayers. And I remember the pace yourself and just observe what's going on because I never stopped to do that. And I will tell you, I missed a lot, but I gained so much more when I started to take your advice. And I'm learning to now um, value time, value relationships, value conversations, and actually listen 
to my body, my mind, the people around me, so I can actually address the need instead of come with so many solutions without listening to what the needs of the people, the company, the staff, the family, even myself, what's needed. So thank you. Oh, you probably wow. don't think words have that kind of weight all these years later, but they do because you're so, you, you, you had lived life a little bit before me and you've been through different things that I have and you saw all of this on me and you just said, hey, best thing I can give to you is this. No, that's, um, that's really powerful. Um, and it's humbling. I, um, you don't always know, you, you, you don't always know, but here's one thing that we do know. Elder wisdom says two words. It says, keep living. <laughs> right. Um, and elder wisdom says, you know what, baby girl, you find out after a while, you keep living and you find out, you know, you'll, you'll find out what's true and what's not. You'll find out what's for you or what's not. You'll find uh -huh. out what's important or what's not, you know. And so it's 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 awesome just to, like I said, to, to get a chance to 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 kind of stalk and see where all these amazing, beautiful people end up and land. And thank you for sharing that with me. You don't always get a chance to know. You don't always know that it that it made a difference. So thank you. But we're gonna get back to you because I'm not gonna be sitting here crying and, and sounding like sniffles. <laughs> Like, I don't feel good. Um, <laughs> um, if you could talk to that younger person, that younger cachet, thinking about everything she's been through, if you could step back in time and talk to her and encourage her, what would you say? Mm. Yeah. I would tell myself, um, give yourself some grace. Mm. don't try to accomplish it all don't try to plan it all enjoy every experience every relationship each day as if you're not trying to plan and predict the next because I think it's so many things that I missed out on because I was rushing through life, right? Only to find that it's not what you think it is. Um, mm. But when you do arrive, you still have a choice to make the best decisions for you at that time. So it's so many things I wish I would have done, like travel more, experience uh, a few more cultural things, mm -hmm. uh, maybe learn different languages, um, took more time to get to know myself, right? Before having to be in care of so of so many other things and people. So I would have given myself grace and I would have listened to my mom. My mom always told me, um, enjoy now. Enjoy the right now. Because you can't get that time back. And you can't, you can't get time back. And um I would I would give myself that to, to enjoy the moment. Wow. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. And that, you know, mothers, they are they are powerful teachers. Right. They teach us a lot of, of things that they teach a lot of teach us a lot about what to do, what not to do. Let's be honest. Right. No, no parent is perfect. And that's part of the journey as well. We're being able to pull back and look at those gems, you know, even as now you've 
you know, the roles probably have reversed a little bit and you're getting to mother her and care for her and help her transition, Absolutely. right? It's um it's a powerful, powerful way to kind of walk through life. I got one more question for you. Well, I've got a couple more. If you could wave your magic wand, how would you build engaging and inclusive cultures and communities that create a sense of belonging? What would it look, feel, and sound like to you? I think you have a unique perspective. I ask this question of a lot of my guests, but I think that because you have stepped and entrenched yourself so deeply in your home community, coming back as an adult, coming back as a professional, coming back as a mother and a caregiver and a CEO, when it, when it looks like creating these amazing, healthy communities that have a sense of belonging and are inclusive, what does that look, feel, and sound like for you? I'll tell you, the first thing that came to mind is, I think I actually lived in a planned community like this when I lived in Houston. Really? So I, I told myself if I can pick another career, it will be a developer because their minds have to be beautiful because they plan the details of wow. phases of communities based on the phases of your life. So wow. when I was in Houston and I was married, I lived in this neighborhood. Um, it was called Lake Bellaterra. I was so proud to build my first home and live there. There was no person in any house that looked just like it was so diverse. Mm -hmm. Families were at different places in life. Some were parents, some were newly married. It was a beautiful thing that I did not see growing up here in the South. Okay. So to my right was a, a Caucasian and Mexican-American female, I mean, not female, but husband and wife. Mm -hmm. And I think we were pregnant at the same time with our first two children. Um, to my left, it was a, a, a lady of Spanish descent, and well, both, she and her husband. Across, there was an African couple. The next couple, it just kept going. Mm -hmm. The daycares were very diverse. My children, my older two, they knew Spanish, sign language, English. You know, um, there were different things we celebrated, different different things I, I just, you know, like yeah. I said, I wish I would have experienced. Right. And when you look at the community, everything was strategically placed there for whatever you thought you may need. It was greenery, it was lakes, it was pet parks, it was playground by phases, there was a daycare, there were elementary schools, middle schools, there was pools, gyms, everything had been planned, uniquely placed based on the phases of your life. So if I had to create a space like that, mm -hmm. it will definitely be a planned community concept because you know, you have your single individuals that are looking for adventure and culture and, and you know, in a community. And it, it will be spaces and restaurants and, and entertainment and things of that nature for them. Um, then it will be things for families um, because that's what you would want to raise your family around other mm -hmm. families. You're going through the same things at different phases in life and et cetera. You know, the empty nesters to the individuals that are. You know, uh, a loved one may may no longer be living, and it's just you or you and your family. I, I would see a, a family, no matter the race, no matter matter the income, being designed to where it's people going through similar phases in life, 
in a customized community unique to the need of you at that time. From healthcare, education, parks, libraries, museums, all of those things centrally located in, in those areas. Now, of course, you 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 you're gonna commingle, but you're always looking for other individuals like yourself going through similar things. So that concept to me is so unique. And however it was developed, it, it was it was perfection. My goodness, that's really powerful. And um, that's a beautiful vision. What I love is, you know, we, we talked about everything from diversity and change management and inclusion and what it means. And what you just articulated is really a, that sense of belonging. And the reality of it is there is more that that is similar or the same about us when we start to think about it through different perspectives than there is that is different. And that's powerful. And that is beautiful. We're getting ready to wrap up. Can you believe it? We have been going for almost an hour. Can you believe it? No, um, I feel like we just started. Yeah, yeah. So one thing I also ask my guests as we get ready to wrap up is, what is your one word checkout? My one word checkout for this time with you has been precious. My word would be precious. Again, as much as it's an opportunity for me to get to hear and catch up with you, it's always amazing when somebody can share that there was significance and you were able to pour into them. I don't take it lightly. So thank you. I wasn't expecting that. So thank you for sharing that. Um, so my one word checkout is precious. What is yours? I would say um, communion. I feel like this mm -hmm. time together was not work related. I don't think, I feel like we did an interview. I really do feel like we sat here and we communed. We came together and we talked about topics that were important to us and, and things that are going on in our community and we were able to openly share our perspectives without a debate or any type of um wrong answer because there is no wrong answer they're just different opinions so, exactly. so it was a good space a great experience and i'm just happy to share mine with you oh wow thank you and i'm going to put those together this was a precious communion for us i love that word Thank you so much. Well, everybody, we are getting ready to wrap it up. Miss Cachet, thank you so much. Miss Lady CEO. Thank you. <laughs> it has been amazing, an amazing honor to see everything that you have accomplished. And I was just listening to that dream you just had a minute ago. You know what? It doesn't sound to me like your story is finished. It is definitely the end is not yet written. You know, the end is not yet written. With that, everybody, we just want to say thank you for joining us for today's episode of Converging Conversations. We would love your feedback about today and what else we can do to create a place to have value-added conversations. How can you stay engaged with us? Please join us with the Converging Conversations podcast in the community. We're going to post today's um, episode. You can find us on LinkedIn and all the podcast platforms. We welcome you. We honor you. and We want you to come and hang out with us. Thank you, everybody.